to the book of Jude, this little postcard of a book in our New Testament. It has occupied our instruction and our attention for the past several Lord's Days. And it's my intent to keep moving through this little book. You would think 25 verses would be easy to cover. And we've, hopefully you've discovered otherwise, that there's a lot actually packed into this brief message from the Lord through the pen of the Lord's half-brother Jude. What is always very helpful to us, though, is when a writer of Scripture in particular uh, lets us know why he's writing. That way we don't have to discover that, we don't have to try to put some things together to, to draw that out. But when he states it very clearly, it's, it's very comforting as the Lord's people to know this is the message of this book. And Jude does this very plainly. In fact, look with me uh, at verse 3, where Jude says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you, and now here's his purpose, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude very plainly says, here's why I'm writing, that you, not just pastors, teachers, you in the pew, in the seat, would be earnest to contend for the faith. Well, why is that necessary? Well, his message is it is the duty of every genuine believer to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And then he immediately goes on in verse 4 and answers the question, why must you contend for the faith? Why is this necessary? In verses 4 through 19, he, he mentions, if you look at verse 4, he begins, for or because, contend because certain people have crept in among you. And these people have done two things according to verse 4. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Why must you contend for the faith? Because it's always been the case among the Lord's people that people tend to creep in and pervert the grace of God in sensual living and deny Christ's authority over them. And Jude goes on to give example of this. In fact, he gives two sets of three Old Testament examples that demonstrate this has always been the case among the people of God, that, that there's this absolute necessity to be alert and beware and contend. He speaks of Israel in the wilderness in verse 5, of angels in the angelic company in verse 6, those in Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. He speaks down in verse 11 of Cain and Balaam and Korah, other Old Testament examples that he's just piling on these examples. He's saying these are the kinds of people that infiltrated among the Lord's people and they perverted God's goodness and they denied his authority. And Jude's point is, and they received the just judgment of God. Jude ends this section as to why we should contend for the faith with two warnings. In verse 14, he says, Enoch, this seventh from Adam, warned about these kinds of people all the way back then. 
And then in verse 17, he says to the church, and you must, beloved, remember that the apostles said the same thing would happen. People would come in and infiltrate and pervert the grace of God and seek to destroy the faith. Why must you contend for the faith? Well, it's because certain people pervert God's grace, they deny his authority, and that has always been the case among God's people. So you must heed the warning. Jude answers the first question, why must you contend? But now notice with me in verse 20, now he's going to answer the question, how must you contend? Have you kind of noticed that as we've been going through this on a weekly basis? We're answering this why question, and we have all of these examples and all of these warnings. And we're saying, okay, okay, finally, I get it, I get it. We need to be alert of this, about how we are maybe making perversion of the grace of God in our own lives, how we must be uh, certainly behaving as we believe. But have you found yourself a little bit frustrated and saying, well, how do I do this? How am I specifically to contend for this faith? And this is where Jude's little epistle ends, and it ends powerfully. In fact, we'll probably spend several Lord's Days on these verses in particular because they're so rich with how we as God's people must contend for the faith. And so just follow along with me as I read and see if you can just pick up what Jude is saying. How are we to contend for the faith? Here's the answer. Look at verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Did you get it? How must you contend for the faith? Well, there's a lot in there, and you might read those verses and say, well, there's like six or seven things in there. Let me simplify this for you. If you were to go back to English class and diagram this sentence, how many of you does that sound fascinating and exciting? Oh, man. Okay, if you were to diagram this sentence, there's actually only one thing that Jude is saying, and there are other things that are in support of that thing or saying and here's how you do that one thing so you may even want to mark this in your bible here's what Jude is saying look at verse 20 but you beloved and now skip right to verse 21 keep yourselves in the love of God there's your main sentence you to contend for the faith Keep yourself in the love of God. 
Well, how do you do that? Well, that's what verse 20, you do it by building yourself up in your most holy faith and by praying in the Holy Spirit and you do it by waiting for the coming of the Lord. So I want to preach to you this morning on this topic of how must you contend for the faith? You contend for the faith by keeping yourself in the love of God. I would just title it this way. We are to contend or be contending from love. Now, there's a lot to explain in that. I'll do my best to help us understand this clearly this morning, but certainly we need the Lord's help to understand what this means. And so let's ask him for that help now. Lord, would you give us your mind as we understand your word today that we would know what it is to keep ourselves in the love of God, that that would be the foundation for us, a foundation from which we contend for the faith. Give us your help, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus loves me, this I know. Can you finish it? For the Bible tells me so. As a child, we sing that, we learn it, we embrace it because it's taught by us to our parents or our faithful Sunday school teachers. As an adult, we question it. We wonder about it because we grow in experience as a human being, and when we grow in our experience on this planet, we experience suffering. We experience trial and turmoil. And it's in the midst of those times that we say, if Jesus really loved me, if God really loved me, why would this be happening? Those two things don't equate. And we question it. Or... We grow in our adult experience and we grow in knowledge. And even as a believer, a true Christian, we grow in our knowledge of God and who he is. And we even grow in our understanding of who we are. And the more we grow, the more we realize how flawed and how sinful we are. And we understand more and more how holy And righteous God is. And we think, if God is so holy, and I am so flawed, how can he love me? I never quite measure up. I'll never be what he intends for me to be. Have you ever felt that way? defeated over sin and suffering because you wonder, does God really love me? At the heart of our text this morning is the answer to this dilemma. In fact, God makes it plain because he wants you to know it and it's absolutely essential for your remaining steadfast and firm in the faith 
and even contending for a faith. We could put it this way. You must keep in God's love to contend for the faith. What does this mean? How am I assured of this? How do I do it? Maintain this and understand this position I have with God. Well, I have two points for you this morning, and I'm going to warn you. The first one is very, very short, and the second one is longer. Okay? The first point I want to make about this text is this. Keeping in God's love, whatever this means, we'll tickle that out in a minute, is your responsibility. How do we know this? If you'll look at verse 21, the very first word, keep. Again, I don't mean to be overly academic, but I think this helps us. That is an imperative. What is meant by an imperative? It's a command. It's not an option. In other words, Jude and the Holy Spirit through the pen of Jude is not saying, I would suggest you do this. What he is saying is, do this. You must do this. You must keep. Some other translations translate this verb a little differently. The New English translations translates it as maintain. Maintain yourself in the love of God. I think that captures some of the word. But we're going to have to look at it in just a minute. What is all of the nuances of it? My point is simply this, whatever we talk about today is not optional for anyone in this room who knows the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. If you are a true follower of Christ, this is not an option. God is saying this is essential. The other thing we note about this in verse 21 is the second word. The first is keep, a command, and what's the second word? What's the second word? You can say it out loud. Yourselves. What does that mean? Again, to be technical, it means it's reflexive. In other words, it's you yourself do this. It's incumbent upon you, not anyone acting outside of you, it's incumbent upon you to take this action and do this. It's essential to contending for the faith. Now, with that beginning, you might think that what we're told to do at the beginning of verse 21 is this, You must keep yourself in love with God. You see that? You might be thinking, okay, since this is upon me to do, to keep myself in this position, what it's telling me is I must maintain my love for God. And that's where we get to the second point. Because secondly... What we need to understand about this is keeping in God's love is not only your responsibility, but it's actually your foundation. So what does it mean to keep in the love of God? Well, let's just answer some questions. Whose love is to be kept? Here's our question. Is it my love for God that I am to keep? Or is it God's love for me? You see in the text, it says keep in the love of God. Again, folks, I I don't mean to be overly technical, and and I always pause to do this, because one, it might put you to sleep, and two, you might think, oh, there goes that guy up there acting like he knows a lot of stuff. I don't. I just read a lot of good stuff, okay? But, But I think this helps us when we read passages like this. 
When it talks about love of God, there's two ways you can take that. And let me try to illustrate it this way with, if you've been with us previously when we did a study on the book of the Revelation, and we came across this same kind of structure in the language. And when that book opens, it says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we looked at that phrase and we said, that can mean one of two things. It can mean that it is the revelation, it is Jesus Christ being revealed or it can mean that Jesus Christ is revealing something. You see that? We have the same kind of construction here. When it talks about keep yourselves in the love of God, it can be keep yourself in God's love or keep yourself loving God, or it can be keep yourself in God's love for you. You see those two things and how they're different? So which is it? Is this saying, keep yourself loving God or keep yourself with an awareness, we would say, of God's love for you? Uh, commentators uh, disagree on this. You could probably find another interpretation of this, and I'm fine with that. But most would fall where I'm going to teach you this morning. Whose love is this? Well, let's just begin right here. Look at verse 20. James says, but you, and how does he address these people? How does he address them? They're beloved, okay? So James is, or Jude is saying, I'm addressing the beloved people. Is this Jude's way of just being kind and saying like, dear friend, like we would put at the beginning of a letter? Is he saying, I love you and you're loved by me, that's why I'm addressing you this way? Well, well, he addresses them this way several times. In fact, look back at verse 17. He says, but you remember, beloved, and he's addressing them this way. Look back at verse 3. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you. And you can see how he's using this as an address. But the question is, is it because Jude loves them or because they're loved by somebody else? And that answer is given us in verse 1. Look at how the epistle begins. Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those, here's his audience, who are called beloved in who? God the Father. Why does he call them beloved? It's because God loves them. True believers are beloved in God. Beloved by God. In fact, you see the word in verse 1, beloved. If you're used to marking in your Bibles, I would encourage you to do this. That word in that very form is used three other times in the New Testament. And we're going to look at all three of those in our Bible because it's going to teach us a lot about what this means and when this happened. What does it mean to be beloved in God the Father? Well, look back at Colossians chapter 3. Throw the book of Colossians, if you turn toward the other end of your Bible, back just a few pages perhaps, Colossians chapter 3. And what I want to do is I want to take you to these three passages in your New Testament. If you're, if you're new to us this morning, don't feel threatened by this. We, we do this a lot. We, we take the Bible and I tell you, look here in the Bible. It's just, it, it, it helps you to work your way around the Bible. I think it helps you to actually look at it. 
And I can tell you things or I can show you things, and I prefer to show you things. And that's what we do. So go to Colossians chapter 3. And when we read these passages, these three passages, I just want you to take note of, of the word beloved in these passages, but also what's around it. What always seems to accompany it? And that's going to help us. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Look at verse 12. Paul writes and says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and what? Beloved. And he's going to tell them, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So here's our term, beloved, and he says, as God's chosen one, you're holy and beloved. All right? Let's go to the next text. Look maybe just over a page to the book of 1 Thessalonians. In fact, maybe if you just turn right one page, it's right there. And look at verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God. Here's our word. It's translated differently, but it's the exact same form. Loved by God that he has chosen you. Verse 5, he goes on and explains more about that. Here's the idea of being loved by God and God has chosen you. Turn over maybe just another few pages to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And look at verse 13. He says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Okay, so looking at those passages, what always seems to accompany this idea of beloved or loved by God? Being chosen by God. In fact, that really comes out in Jude. Go back to our text now. And look at, not our text, but look at the first verse of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are what? Called. You know what we could say right there? Chosen. Because I don't have time to take you there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul uses those terms interchangeably when speaking of God's calling and God's choice. He says, you are called or chosen, beloved of God the Father. Here's what this means. True believers are beloved by God. Why? Who decided that? God did. It wasn't because someday you woke up and said, I think I love God. And because I love him, guess what? Oh, now he loves me. And now I'm his child. No, what this is, the fact that somebody is beloved by God, it's a decisive act on God's part. It's a choice that he has made that results in a permanent state. The permanent state is loved. Because God chose he loves. It's a determination by God to set 
his unique love on his own. Now, if you are a thinking, Bible-reading Christian, that should send off questions in your mind. Because one of the most familiar verses in all the Bible is this, John 3, 16, say it with me. For God so loved the world. You say, oh, well, is that what this is saying? God loves the world, and so therefore, that's what's being communicated here. I'm to keep myself on this kind of notion. But is it saying that all the world is called or saved or chosen? If not, what's the difference? How does God love the world, and yet we're told that God chooses and loves specifically his own? It's true God does love the world, but he does have a special love for those whom he has chosen. Let me try to illustrate that this way. You're a parent of a young child, and you go to a playground to have a playtime with other parents and their children. Maybe you go to Wonderland in Salem or you know, one of those jungle gym things that kids always break their necks on, okay? And, and you're, you're out there with other families, and there are other children there, and you could say, you love those other children. If they were harmed, you would want to help. If they had a need, you would want to meet that need. If they needed some care, you would do what you could to offer that. And not because they've done anything. It's not conditioned on what they've done. It's, in a sense, you do have a kind of unconditional love and care for them. But you also have other children there, and they are your children. And when there is bullying or injury to your child, do you feel differently about that than when that might happen to other children? Is there a kind of protective love that kicks into gear on that? Or if your child is doing the bullying or the injuring, do you sense out of loving responsibility to intervene and take care of that issue even more so than you would for others? Or if your child, you see them helping another child, you see them denying themselves and serving the other children. Does your heart kind of swell up a little bit inside of you? And you rejoice greatly in seeing that? Now, all of those things can be tainted by human fallenness and sin. But the reason that you feel that way about your child is because they are your own. And this is what the passage is communicating to us, that God has a specific, intentional, active love for his own. It excels that kind of love just in general for the world that he provides for everyone on the planet. It's a love that engages and that is intimately concerned with you and what takes place in your life and has goals and objectives for you. This is love that, dare I say, is beyond unconditional. 
It's a love that is intentional and it's active. Now, here's the thing, beloved. When did God choose to love you like that? You might say, well, that was the day that that he called me, as the scripture says. When I heard the gospel, I heard the good news about Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, his atonement for my sin. And when I heard that, the eyes of my soul were opened, I recognized my need, and I cast myself upon him for salvation. And that's the day then that God chose to love me because I chose him and I became his own. Is that the way it happened? Well, look with me at the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, look at verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, verse 4, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world. Okay, when was the foundation of the world? When did God lay the foundation of the world? Genesis chapter 1. He spoke it into existence. It says, before any of this you see, God chose you. Now, friends, I understand that I'm treading on some very thin ice, and it might solicit a lot of negative response. But were it otherwise in the scripture, I would tell you. That's why I'm having you turn to these passages and saying, this is just what the scripture says. But here's what that does for us, aside from any theological squabbles we might want to get into. What it's saying in regard to Jude is this. Keep yourself in this. Remind yourself of this. God set his love on you before any of this came into being, and it's an intentional, deliberate choice of you. And that is foundational. If I don't understand that, if I question that, I am on shaky ground. My life is filled with turbulence. Well, why is that the case? Well, let's go back to some questions that we began with. What about then when I sin, even as a believer? What about when I suffer and my life is difficult and hard and I question God's love? How do those things compute? And do you realize there's an entire chapter in your Bible given to answer that very question? Some people consider it one of the, most, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. I want you to turn there with me. It's the book of Romans in the 8th chapter. Romans chapter 8 deals with two questions that every genuine believer faces. I still sin. How can God love me? And I still suffer. 
how can God love me? And here is the inspired answer to those questions that we all wrestle with at times in our lives. Look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Paul begins this way. He says, there is therefore now no what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's what he says. You may sin even as a believer, and you may feel remorse over that sin, which you should, but remember, you're not condemned. Because when Jesus died, he died for all of your sins, past, present, even your future sins, because I would remind you that when he died, all your sins were future. You are not condemned before God. You have been free. Now, do I still sin? Absolutely. Should I feel remorse over that sin? Absolutely. But what do I do? I come back to this God who loved me enough to provide a way for me to be forgiven, and I confess it, and I forsake it, and I find mercy. And what happens when I don't as God's child, if I still sin and I continue in that sin? Guess what? God loves you enough to chasten you. Let's go back to the playground. We're at the playground. My kid gets out of line and, and starts doing something that is wrong. I, as a parent, am active. I engage. I say, because I love you, don't do that. And I discipline my children. If I'm at the playground with your kids, I'm not disciplining your kids. In fact, sometimes I kind of chuckle a little bit and say, <laughs> my kid does that too. Well, I'm glad I'm not the only one, right? I might lovingly rebuke and say, hey, don't do that. Stop that. But I'm not going to discipline them. Why? They're not mine. And I don't have that. I'm sorry. I don't have that same kind of attachment as I do to my own kids. God says, I love you so much that when you sin, even as a believer, I love you enough to chasten you, to let you feel the consequence of that, to bring you back to me, to even feel the pangs of conscience and remorse. And those are all designed to draw you back to this God who loves you. He's not looking to condemn you. He wants to fellowship with you. What about the other issue? that I suffer. We live in a broken world, and, and sickness occurs, and accidents happen, and people, loved ones, die. What's loving about that? Well, the rest of the passage really speaks to that, beginning in verse 18, where Paul says in Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. One thing Paul says is this, this world is broken. It's not like it should be. Praise God, it's not like it will be. So remember, this is not the way it will always be. But he goes on to say this, familiar verse, verse 28 of Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, now this is speaking of our love for God, 
all things, and he's speaking in the context of suffering, all things work together for what? For good. And what is the good? The good is found in the middle of verse 29. It's to be conformed to the image of his son. God is working all things because he loves you. He's even using these things of suffering to conform you to the image of Christ. Why is he doing this? Look at the end of verse 28. For those who are what? Called. And remember what I said we could substitute there? Chosen. You are chosen for this purpose, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're involved right now in a process of sanctification, being made like him. And someday when you see him face to face, you will be glorified and you will be like him. And this is God's loving plan for you. And he's using even the difficulties and sufferings in your life to work toward that objective. The trouble is, when we suffer, or even when we're sinned against, we tend to think God's plan is off track. He doesn't love me, and we become bitter And then we're into the first category. Now I've sinned, what should I do? But if you don't have at the foundation of this that God chose you, he loves you no matter what, you will always tend to fall into anger and bitterness. That's why the passage ends this way. Look at verse 35 of Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? See how he concludes this? We question this when we sin and when we suffer, and he ends the the whole thing with, okay, who's going to separate us from this? And he goes on this whole list of things, and he says, nothing. Why? Because before God ever laid the foundation of the world, he he set his love upon us for this purpose. And I'm confident of that. That's why the songwriter writes, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why me unworthy yet Christ in love redeemed me for his own. Why would God do that? Because God is gracious and merciful and kind and loving. This is the foundation of things. Now go back to Jude and we'll be done. This is why Jude tells these people struggling in their own congregation with other people who live like sinners, who have perverted the grace of God, denied his authority. He says, listen, if you're ever going to live right, this is foundational. Don't forget how much God loves you. Don't you ever question that. He decided upon you before the world ever came into being. It is foundational. And so I would put it this way. Since it is the duty of all of us, every believer, to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, how do you contend for the faith? 
Keep yourself in God's love. Remind yourself regularly how much God loves you. You say, that sounds very generic. Is that really the case, Pastor? Is it really that simple? Let me just throw this out for you. When you read the Bible and you come from the beginning where God created the world in Genesis 1 and he creates man and woman in Genesis 2 and brings them together, and now you come to Genesis 3 and the tempter enters the picture, what strategy did Satan use to deceive Eve? He told Eve, God knows that the day that you eat of that fruit, you're going to be like him. And you'll know right from wrong. What was he getting at? God doesn't what? Love you. He doesn't have your best in mind. He doesn't really care about you. And he's planting the seed of doubt in questioning God's absolute committed love for them. And they took the bait. And over the millennia, friends, his tactic has not changed. Though God says it time and time again, how often do we question that? Does God really love me? Or is he trying to withhold something from me? If this feels so right, how can it be wrong? Is God's best really for me? So how do we do this? Keep yourself in the love of God. Remember, it's your responsibility, but it's foundational. Let me give you this illustration and we'll be done. When our second son, Caleb, many of you know him, he was uh, born premature. He was born at 34 weeks. And uh, he had to stay in the hospital a little while. He had some issues when we brought him home. Uh, he was uh, extremely jaundice, um, which means my wife, the scientist, would explain it better. Uh, basically, when I looked at him, he looked like a pumpkin. Uh, <clears throat> but he, he, needed, he needed some vitamin D, I guess, from the sun or whatever to, to help him overcome jaundice. All you ladies know what I'm talking about. Guys, ask your wives later, okay? And so the doctor told us, he said, uh, do you have a sunny room in your house? And we did. We lived down in Salem at the time. We had what we called the sun porch, and it was south-facing. And, and he said, uh, take him and put him in near the window um, to, I guess, bake like bread, right? Uh, put him near the window. And so we did, and we consistently uh, thank the Lord, we had many sunny days, and we put him by the window, and amazingly, he turned like that and um, completely removed his jaundice. Now, the doctor said, you need to do this. I need to put him in front of the window. But I didn't make the sun. I don't make it shine. God does all of that. That's his part. But I had to take initiative to bring that exposure to him. 
When Jude says, keep yourself in God's love, what he's saying is, it is incumbent upon you to remind yourself of this. And to perhaps meditate on God's words about this. And perhaps even recite those words to yourself about this when you need them. To intentionally bring this to mind, especially at times when you are beleaguered by sin and battered by suffering. You must do this. It's essential to contending for the faith. Why? If you don't, you'll be tempted to disobey God. Remember Jude's talking about false teachers perverting God's grace, denying His authority. They probably thought in their mind, well, this mean God is withholding something from us. It's okay for us to do this. This mean God is too demanding and demanding too much of us. Do you see how they connect? Keep yourself in God's love. Remind yourself often. This is how we contend for the faith. Let's pray together.